Knowable.me acknowledges that we record this podcast, work and live on the unceded lands and waters of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Their wisdom, storytelling and deep listening is a history we pay respect to in the creation of this podcast. Welcome to Knowable.me, I'm Kelly Schultz and in this episode we'll be diving in the most hygienic way possible into public toilets. I'm confident that you have a public toilet story and that it's more likely to be a bit gross than a bright and shiny story. I have two guests today both with their own unique stories about public toilets. A bit of history first, and it is incredibly long when it comes to public toilets, but for what we understand them to be today, the invention and installation of aqueducts by the Romans is where sewage systems really took off. And because they were a centralised system rather than servicing every house, communal or public toilets were the result. In Roman culture, going to the toilet was a social event a relaxing time to meet with friends and colleagues, talk about current events and catch up on gossip. Probably not unlike how you might be scrolling your socials while on the toilet today. Not that many people admit to that. And talking of socials, there are way more Instagram accounts dedicated to toilets than I could have ever imagined. So there's something for you to doom scroll when you next find yourself procrastinating. On to my first guest, Catherine Weber is an expert on toilets and public toilets in particular. She's even a recipient of a Churchill Fellowship to look into the topic. Welcome to Knowable.me, Catherine. Tell me what makes your experience of public toilets unique. Well, it took me some while to realise that I had been collecting public toilet stories or toilet stories from family, friends and colleagues. I've worked for about 10 years working in the community sector and for government. And a key part of that has been making sure that people can participate in activities, in governance. And there was all these stories about people not being able to participate because they couldn't access toilets, whether it was through education or through work. I had a colleague who refused to use the work toilet. Another friend who told me this story of, breastfeeding and taking a a toddler to the toilet at the same time in a shopping centre. Elderly friends reduced their movements because they didn't know where the toilets were in relation to the bus stops. So I collected all of these stories and then started to do some research on public toilets and um, am now a public toilet researcher. Is researcher the, the sort of the public term? Do you have another name for it? What do you call yourself? Toilet enthusiast would be another terminology that I would uh, proudly wear on a badge. I assume you do start a lot of conversations about toilets. What sort of reaction do you get? I think people laugh a lot. They think it's a very unique topic to be interested in. There's not a lot of us out there. But then also people start sharing their toilet stories. I get the worst case scenarios where it was a really horrific experience, but then also the really unique public toilets that people have had to visit. So I am continuing to collect all of these public toilet stories. Sounds like there's a book in your future of toilet anecdotes. Have you thought about that? I haven't, but maybe there's time to start jotting some of them down. Well, I have seen some of your work 
So tell me about the Churchill Fellowship. Yeah, so in 2018, I applied to become a Churchill Fellow and was lucky enough in 2019 to travel overseas to explore what other countries were doing around public toilets. And so I was really looking at what are some of the barriers to access that people facing in different cities and how they're being addressed. So I went to Portland, Oregon, and got to meet with um, a great community group called Flush, Public Hygiene Let's Us Stay Human. And they've been doing a lot of work around advocacy for public toilets. And Portland is very unique in the fact that they've designed the Portland Loo, which is a self-contained toilet the size of a car park that they um, can then locate in parks or on public streets. And they've shipped that design around the world. There's one in Dunedin that I'm yet to go visit. So the Churchill Fellowship was a great opportunity to, to travel and to meet different people interested in public toilets and work out what we could be doing better here in Australia. So on that Portland toilet concept, is that like a shipping container that fits in the size of a car park? Yeah, so it's, it's grey, it's metal, it's kind of rounded at the front and it's, it's quite large in the fact that you could go in with a pram, a shopping trolley, um, it's accessible inside. They've got slats at the bottom and the top so you can see if someone else is in there but it's also designed to be graffiti and vandal resistant as well. And in Portland, it was important to address the needs of homelessness, but also everyone who was out using their public spaces. And so they did a lot of community consultation on that specific design. From reading your report, I learnt that there are a lot of people, professions and subject matter experts involved in developing, designing, building public toilets. Where does a public toilet start? Well, I believe a public toilet starts when we've got a public space. So everybody that leaves the house is going to need to use a toilet at some point in their day. And what is unique is that they're not an area of planning or infrastructure that a lot of people are really passionate about, which makes my role unique. And it doesn't really fit in any one particular role. So you do have people who are planning our town centres, our urban spaces, our parks, and toilets might sit on the outside of that. You might have architects planning buildings. You need to consider how many toilets are provided. But there isn't any standards for when you're then providing toilets in the public sphere. So we've got this kind of gap of knowledge, but then there's a lot of different people who are using public toilets, um, and I would say everybody out here is listening, is a public toilet user because if you leave your house, you're going to need to use a public toilet at some point in time. So if there's no regulation about outdoor spaces having public toilets, I assume then public toilets in some ways become a bit of a risk mitigation strategy rather than something that is looked at as being a value add. You know, Bluey made famous the Bushwee, I think. And so there's obviously needs out there. And if you're in a public space and you need to fulfil that need, you're going to do the best you can with what you've got. Is it a bit of risk mitigation that goes into the minimum possible public toilet development? Without public toilets, people are going to be doing their Bushwees and their Bushpoos which in built-up areas is not great and 
you know, nobody wants that at the front of their house or their office or their place of work. So, yes, there is that need to provide them. But then we can look at the benefits of providing them as well. So if you know that there is a safe, accessible, clean public toilet that you can use, you are going to spend longer at the playground, at a social event, shopping down the main street. So if we flip it and look at the benefits that toilets provide, and then also that benefit is reducing that public defecation, that public urination as well. So I think we really need to change the story around how we look at public toilets and see them as a really important infrastructure for our public spaces. What role do toilet manufacturers play in this equation? We've talked about the planners and the local government or whoever is planning those spaces. Do toilet manufacturers come up with innovation and have a role to play in public toilets? So there's some really interesting designs that we've got here in Australia and overseas around the automated public toilets. So they're the ones that you might have to press a button to open. They've got a sliding door. The door shuts automatically and then there might be a voice that tells you what's happening. There's often a time limit to how long you can spend in those automated toilets and then the door will open. The idea behind the door opening is that it produces people sleeping in it. Um, If there's some violence or anything else occurring in there, that won't, you know, it will then be open to the public. So what's been really interesting about those designs is that they've got a self-cleaning element. So when somebody leaves the toilet, often the toilet bowl, the floor will get sterilised. So that reduces the need for somebody to go in and clean it on a regular basis, uh, which your standard public toilets need to happen. So I do think there is that role for innovation. Although with those, you still need someone making sure that the paper towel and the toilet paper is being refilled and there's enough soap. But often there is smart technology that will look at usage and levels in there. So you've got that technology that says, hey, this needs a maintenance trip, which your standard local park public toilet made of bricks isn't going to have. So often you don't even have counters, so the local government's not knowing how frequently they're used. So the maintenance schedule is going to be based on complaints rather than on that data and information. So what do we need to do better in public toilets in Australia? You've been around the world and seen what the rest of the world is doing. What does Australia need to do better? I think a big gap that we could meet is by creating some legislation that says Public toilets are essential infrastructure and legislate their need. So we don't have any legislation around responsibility for public toilets. So we don't say that it is a local government or a state government responsibility. So I think that needs to be clarified. I think there also needs to be funding for them because often, you know, if you've got money for a playground or a toilet, the money is going to go into the playground because that's the space that visible and are the attractor but the public toilet then supports the use of that playground. So I do think the legislation requiring public toilets and funding for them is super important. But then I think also we can talk to communities around what they need in toilets. I've visited a vast array and and there's varying standards, varying quality. Um, 
I don't have any caring responsibilities, permanent disabilities, yet I can feel uncomfortable sometimes, you know, trying to open the door when you've got a backpack on and somewhere to hang it up and you shut the door and you kind of have to squiggle around to fit in. You know, I think we can really talk to people about how they best use toilets so that they're designed in response to those needs. Who does it well? Who in the world does public toilets well? I think the best ones I've visited are the ones that have two things. One, there's a network plan. So you have maps and you know where the toilets are. So there is a suitable coverage. But then the toilets are safe and they're clean and they're designed that you can get in and out and there's good visibility. So I think it really does depend on the user to who you know, to what is a good public toilet. I think any public toilet is better than none. Some people will challenge me on that and say that there is definitely some bad ones out there that they do not want to use, but we've got to start somewhere. Where's your favourite public toilet? So I do have to admit that I have driven two hours to visit a public toilet in Kenilworth on the Sunshine Coast. They ran a competition to design a public toilet And I was living in Brisbane at the time and drove up to visit this public toilet. I think it's fabulous. Um, There was a a competition on the design. It's bright green and yellow. It's got public art. It's got fish on the roof. And, you know, I I do think it's a tourist attraction and definitely attracted me to hours to drive to it. And so I think... My favourite public toilets are the ones that reflect the local community and incorporate art, whether it's mosaics or some bright colours that make it a nice place to go visit. We do seem to have that sense of not wanting to talk about it or it being a bit dirty or uncomfortable kind of conversation. There are taboos around toilets because you're doing a very personal activity in a public space. People don't want to be seen, they don't want to be heard, but they're essential for us to stay out and about and participate. Like they're our bodies and our bodies have needs and therefore we need toilets so our bodies can function effectively. It's interesting that you mentioned the elderly and restricting their movements. I'm pretty confident that my grandmother had the bladder of a blue whale because I don't think she ever used a public toilet quite deliberately would only ever go at home. And the idea that restricts your movement or not having access to something that you need is really an independence issue. It's not just for the fun things, it's for the things that you have to do. Everyone has to go and visit the doctor or go to the pharmacy or... Which is why I think public toilets are so important for dignity and that social inclusion. As you said, the shopping, the doctors, you know, exercising... It's important to know that you can access a toilet if you need to when you're going for a walk or taking the dog out. And so their limitations on when toilets are locked at night to prevent access doesn't help if you're also driving for work and you drive at night time. Where are you supposed to go? So I think those places that people can go were definitely restricted during COVID when we had lockdowns and businesses were closed. You couldn't go into shops in the same way that you can now even. Toilets are really important for that dignity and social inclusion. 
but also so people can be employed and work in public spaces. So why not make them artworks? Why not make them loud and proud and out there and funky and part of the community? Why hasn't that caught on? I think there's been an increase and I've definitely seen quite a few in Australia. I think also there's still that taboo around toilets. They're seen as dirty and filthy and we don't want to be around them. But I think if we improve the design and then have regular maintenance of them, we can kind of strip away some of those ideas around the dirt and the filth of our public toilets. So what can people do to advocate for better public toilet access and facilities? Well, we are very fortunate in Australia that we do have the National Public Toilet Map. So it's an app that you can download on your phone or there's a website that you can go And that's really useful if you're out and about and need to find a toilet. So there's that. But I think if there's a toilet you do like, tell other people and maybe tell the people who manage it. So if it is in a park, contact your local government and say, great, thank you so much for this toilet. It's, you know, we love using it. Or if there's somewhere that there isn't a toilet and you want one, do the same thing. Hey, I use this train station all the time. Why aren't there public toilets for commuters? or in the park, because I think if we increase the conversations around them, we're going to start increasing that visual or that verbal demand for toilets and hopefully increase the importance and the visibility of them. I'm going to start some uh, social media toilet appreciation posts, I think. Is there a hashtag for toilet appreciators? We could start one. (laughs) I think we need to start one. Let's work on what that could be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I get the impression you could talk about toilets all day and I'm very curious and, and entertained by them. So is there anything we haven't mentioned about toilets that you want to get out into the world? I think two things for people, two key dates to add to your diary. The 19th of November is World Toilet Day, so that is a day of the year that you can appreciate public toilets, all the people who work to maintain them and to design them. And also March 22nd is World Water Day, and we do have different styles of toilets, including composting and drop toilets, but the majority of our toilets in Australia are linked to water, and so I I do think the World Water Day is also an important one for the calendar to appreciate public toilets. Thank you for your time today, Catherine. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. I certainly have my own stories of public toilets, especially navigating them with a guide dog. It's always interesting squeezing into a store with a dog and wondering who people think I'm talking to when I say things like, get your nose out of there, or don't lick that. Although I'm sure parents understand those scenarios well. The other public toilet tale I like to tell is about one of those big metal box varieties, the ones that clean themselves and play Kenny G for you. And it's about the signage inside those particular toilets. Someone in the design process decided that all of the signs needed to be translated into Braille. Big tick, well done. This particular sign was directly translated, and it says, If this light is flashing, please evacuate the cubicle immediately. So, a braille sign for blind people 
if this light is flashing. Really? Now, I'm sure there are audible cues, and yes, some people who read Braille have some vision, myself included, but really. And it's not like it was just one person. Someone had to decide what they wanted it to say. Someone who knows Braille had to create it, and someone will have approved all of those designs. This is why accessibility isn't a tick box exercise. Translating your signs into Braille requires a little deeper thinking about what you're telling someone and the context in which they're likely to be using it. And on the topic of accessibility, my next guest is Jeff Naylor. Jeff is an advocate for changing places, which we'll talk about, and has been working tirelessly to get accessible toilet facilities installed across Victoria and in his local government area. Welcome to Knowable.me. Jeff, thanks for your time. Tell me, what makes your experience of public toilets unique? Well, it's great to be here, Kelly. I really appreciate the opportunity. So our position's unique, I guess, because we've got a 24-year-old disabled child in a wheelchair. He's no sense of balance, cerebral palsy all over. He uses a communication device with an iPad. And uh, life is really difficult when you can't self-transfer to use the bathroom. We're going to have a chat about changing places. But before we get to that, what makes the regular accessible bathrooms, the ones that are quite common now, not usable in your circumstance? So any, it's a great question. Anyone who is unable to stand up out of a wheelchair, so they're completely non-ambulant ones, who aren't able to stand up and transfer themselves, onto a toilet, they're the ones who need assistance. So generally they have a carer or family member with them while they're trying to use the bathroom. So the changing places have a ceiling hoist that can lift people up and around the room. And then they'll also have an adult-sized change table, just like a change table that you have for your babies in a bathroom, on a bigger scale, of course, for, the, for an adult size. So those two things, the height-adjustable change table and the ceiling hoist, mean that we can we can effectively use the bathroom out in community. So talk to me about changing places. It's a great initiative. There aren't anywhere near enough of them, but to tell me about the tell me about changing places. So they're a larger footprint bathroom than a normal disabled DDA or Disability Discrimination Act compliant bathroom. So they're the normal disabled toilets that you see around. And they are about half the footprint size, the half the square metres of floor space. And they might have a handrail next to the toilet or have something else to assist people and a bit more room to move around, but they don't have the what's required for, to help people who can't transfer themselves. So those bathrooms are pretty much useless to anyone in a wheelchair that can't self-transfer. How does one find out where changing places are? So you can go to the Changing Places website and there's a you can put in your address or your uh, postcode and how far to your closest one. I think if your listeners are um, thinking about mobility and the reality is we can lose our mobility at any time. We could have an accident on the road tomorrow and lose our mobility and that's too late to find out where your closest Changing Places toilet is. It would be great for the listeners if they're open to it, to go to the Changing Places website and have a look and see just how far away their closest Changing Places toilet is, and they might be very surprised at how far that is. 
And given some of those distances, how does that impact how you decide what to do as a family or how to support your son in the community? Yeah, great question again. So we live in Bayside, Melbourne. It's made up of nine suburbs and we have currently two changing places toilets in that whole nine suburbs. So one is in a car park at the back of Woolies near Church Street in Brighton and another one is at a playground at Thomas Street Playground in Hampton. So the reality is that to go out for lunch or dinner as a family, really only choices around uh, the local Church Street shopping strip and even then your dinner could, your lunch or dinner could arrive just at the time when your loved one wants to go to the toilet and whether your dinner sits on the table uneaten or half eaten, you're out of there because you've got to go and take the person to answer the call of nature. I think that's heavily confronting for people who don't know about it. Uh, but it, what it does to people in this situation is you make a decision as to well, when was the last time they were on the toilet, how do we think we'll go in terms of time frame, you've probably got a four-hour window. It's a very, It really restricts you, restricts you in terms of movement into society and that opportunity to socialise. And this was what NDIS was all about in terms of getting people out, interacting in the community and engaging in life. And so... It, what it gets to is a, is really it's an isolating situation in society where people you know, more often than not choose to stay home and get takeaway or delivery to home. So, and you know, for anyone wondering why you don't see many wheelchairs in society, it's probably because they're at home uh, doing what they can just to survive and not out there participating in society. So it's not just that they don't want to be out in society, it's that we don't have the, we don't have the support structures in place and, uh, some, and honestly some councils are so, so um, backward in, in setting up these things and progressing that uh, it makes it really frustrating. It's really sobering for everyday people to think about that, particularly people who can go into a regular bathroom that might just be at the back of the restaurant. Without labouring the point, you talk about having to leave a meal. We're not just talking about going next door or down the road. You're potentially talking about having to completely transfer back into a car, back to that Woolies car park, in and out of the car, in a wheelchair as well, to then get into a usable facility. Absolutely. You could be, you'd be sitting in a restaurant you could, if you were able to get in into the restaurant in terms of accessibility. So you could be 10 minutes to get out of the restaurant into the car and then head off, lose your car park, go to a changing places that's available, might be a kilometre away, and then get out of the car, go and use the toilet, get back into the car and come back to the restaurant to cold meals. And Most people would just choose to go home. It's a massive impact on your ability to free will and decide on a whim to do something. It requires a huge amount of planning. Everything's planned. It's nothing spontaneous hardly at all. Uh, and if it is, it's uh, to go to the shops or you, know, you might go to a main shopping centre that has one of these toilets and there's an option to do something there to extend the time out. But it's really, you know, we, we, the NDIS came in and there was a mandate on councils around the country to be more inclusive with their decision making and their infrastructure and some are leading the way and others are lagging and I think the leaders are 
where there's a connection to disability and senior management. So that makes a big difference. I, as much as the next person, like a good Woolies chook and coleslaw for dinner, but I don't think I'd want it every day just to have one availability of going to the bathroom at the back of the Woolies car park. It's not a way to enjoy the community. <laughs> Who doesn't like a Woolies chook though, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, so, yeah, it's it's look, it's really frustrating. I've been advocating in this space for a probably eight years or close to a decade because I realised what the problems were and how restrictive this is, and not just for our situation, but I've essentially become a voice for this the grouping of people in the community that don't have a voice. And I'm quite proud of what I've done. And it's got through to Zoe Daniel made a speech about me in Parliament House. I think it's incredible that that how far the reach can become from one voice. But you can't be one voice, you have to be a collective to get real change. So I hope that some of your listeners think about this and what can happen and the differences it can make to people's lives. It will be a blessing to be able to have a venue in in each municipality or each uh, local council region or a couple of them at least that you could go out for lunch or dinner and know that there was all the facilities needed for any form of disability. If I've also got listeners who weren't aware that changing places existed and this might be a way for them to access the community. How does one get access to changing places? So you have to go to a doctor and basically prove that the disability is such that you require access to these changing places bathrooms. And then you get a, so you get a letter from your doctor and then you have to apply for a, what's called an MLAC key at your local council. All of the changing places bathrooms have the same key which is great but there's and there's other forms of access that you can have with doors that really should, probably should be considered more than just a key because uh, there's disabilities where people won't be able to use a key um, whereas a, maybe a swipe card or a sensor on a wheelchair or something that can be universal would make it so much easier but these it's it's probably into the future with what's going to come next but in terms of that you know, that's what you need to do to get a key and that same key opens any changing places bathroom around Australia. So locking these bathrooms, there'd be people out there going, well, but it's a bathroom. Why can't anyone access those bathrooms? So why are changing places locked? They're locked because there's equipment in there. There's like $100,000 worth of equipment in there in terms of the ceiling hoist, the hoist itself, the high-low change table that legitimately needs to be in good working order and maintained in good working order for when the individual or people need it. So to open those bathrooms up to everyone in the community means that there'll be a whole lot of hands on them that are untrained and things can happen to them where they get damaged or vandalised and the like. So this is a point of conjecture in, in the community, I think, where there's an education program really needed from federal government through state government and local councils as to what these really are and why they're so important and why they're needed and why they should be respected by people that don't need them to leave them alone and let the people access society that need them. There's plenty of there's plenty of bathrooms around for everyone else and they're generally right beside them. I can understand people being frustrated. They see a bathroom and they can't open the door, but... If they knew the real reason why that would be why that was the case, rather than just not having any signage that says why, even the sign on the door would say enough to educate people as to why they can't get in. 
Is there anything else you want people out there to know about access to toilets? I, I guess that really we just want people to be understanding what changing places are, why they're needed so desperately by the community. And we've got, what, just over 200 across the whole of Australia. So if you've put any other group, whether it's males, females, any diversity group, and say you've only got 250 toilets across Australia, good luck. Who else would be accept that as normal? It's just not. In- inclusion, not leaving anyone behind. And to me, that's why I advocate so hard for this. It's really the lowest level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And excretion is definitely on that level. And I've been pushing hard on this with our local council, Bayside Council, but there's so many more levels of that Maslow's structure that come with the socialisation, inclusion and other aspects that, that really we can only get into when people can seriously and welcomingly uh, access the community as they should be able to. And what can people do to advocate when they do go and have a look and figure out how far away they are from their nearest accessible changing places? What can people do? I think they, they should be uh, writing a letter to their local councillor, ward councillor or the councillor group in their council and point out that they're not happy with the distance that they would have to travel if they lost their mobility tomorrow. And I think if you're happy, I would like to draft a letter that you can share with this podcast after this and give people a generic template that they can use so it doesn't matter who they're, where they're at, where they are or which council, they can pretty much quickly fill in the details and send it off to them. We will absolutely do that. We'll make that available and share it far and wide. Thanks for your time and your openness to share your experiences. Jeff. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been a couple of weeks since I recorded that interview with Jeff and since then we have created a letter template and made it really easy for you to advocate for changing places in your local government area. Check out changingplaces.org.au to see how far you actually are from a changing place. Then head to knowable.me forward slash more changing places. We've got some quick templates to download or enter your details into the form and it will create a ready to copy letter for you to email or post All of the local government details are there. It'll take two minutes max and has the potential to make a massive difference in your community. In case you missed it, knowable.me forward slash more changing places. You go do that now and I'll catch you on the next episode. A big thank you to our guests, Catherine and Jeff, for sharing their insights and experiences with me. As always, please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics, feel free to reach out to me on the socials or by emailing podcast at knowable.me. Thanks for listening.